It's time for us to say no. It's time to put aside our petty self-interest, take a step back and see where this is leading. Hello and welcome to the sixth and final episode of Silence, Please. We can do online advertising better, more successfully and more profitably without spying on the public, destroying our credibility, enriching criminals, degrading our news media and endangering our freedoms. This series, we've used topics from Bob Hoffman's book, Bad Men, to interrogate the online advertising industry. We've invited brave industry professionals to join us in discussing ad tech, tracking, bullshit, the duopoly and digital pollution. We have stared deep into the troubled soul of online advertising and we haven't held back. After all of that, we wanted to end the series on a high. We love our industry and we believe we can bring positive change to it. So we're calling this episode Creative Renaissance. Joining me today, our Managing Director of MJ Media, Matt Fuller, Executive Creative Director at 360i Europe, Melissa Ditson, and Experienced Director at Adam and Eve DDB, Drew Spencer. So, the digital advertising industry has a terrible reputation for not being creative. I want to use this episode to discuss where our industry will go after May 25th and how we can use creativity to take us in a positive direction. Let's start with some definitions. What are we actually aiming for? What makes a good online ad? Matt? For me, I think the the first port of call is to not see it as an online ad because it is pigeonholed and it is called an online ad. Consumers don't see online ads, they see advertising. So to call it online ads or call it digital ads, I think is misleading in the first place. And that's meant that you've got digital departments, online advertising departments, and actually it should be about the pure creativity itself. I can see both of your fellow guests nodding their heads. Is that your take on it as well, Drew? You see online advertising as part of something bigger. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I think from my personal perspective and certainly some of the people I know around the industry, it's removing the labels is a big part of what the task should be right now. Um, Just understanding that really it's about having a true insight about what the consumer is looking to achieve in that particular moment, how the brand product or service can be helpful. Putting something together that brings that truth, you know, and takes advantage of that truth in that moment. Now, all that said, online advertising is, of course, a distinct platform. There are things that you can do online that you can't do elsewhere. So to go back to the original question, what makes a good online ad? I take your point, but at the same time, are there things that you might want to do in online because you can? Melissa? Yeah, absolutely. I think you can do so much more online and in digital. And I think when you look at digital, it's, I mean, it's becoming... It's so big. You've got things like AR and VR, like all these different technologies. We always start with an idea. And I think as long as you you start there and then you can think around all of the different touch points and, and ways that it can come to life and the ways that people can interact with it. Do you, Matt, see within online the opportunity to measure what happens as a as a good thing or do you think it should be the creative idea first? I think there needs to be some level of measurement, but you sit in presentations and you see 12 rows by six rows of numbers and information that can be pulled and you're just like, what what am I even looking at now? Where have we gone with this? And you feel like you've disappeared down the absolute rabbit hole and then you kind of go, okay, what's most important? And then every platform has a different way of measuring success, if you like, or measuring how successful your campaign has been. 
So I think there is a bit of a move away from it and a move away from actually measuring everything to the, the minutia of the detail and actually saying, is this a good idea? As opposed to do all of these numbers at the end of this box make sense to anyone? True. Why do you think it is that online hasn't been treated to the same levels of creativity as other platforms like television? So I don't know that I agree that that's true. I think that what we see is that online is a new playground. And so, you know, the people who want to make a quick buck have rushed in and taken advantage. Personally, I think I think that w what you get is more attention paid to that use of online. I think there are plenty of examples of amazing creative executions and ideas online that um, would disprove that theory. So I don't know that I agree that it's true, but, but I think that the reason why um, online has perhaps been so many people have rushed in and kind of lowered the bar um, when it comes to online is because they can, because nobody stopped them. So there's been a lack of quality control. I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, you know, I was, I was thinking this morning just, um, you know, about what other industries have experienced things like this. And I suppose, you know, the first cars probably weren't the most fuel efficient. They probably destroyed the environment um, way, more, way more than the electric vehicles we see today. So, you know, it's just over time, people learn from their mistakes and, and, and the industry evolves. Um, we're just at a very early stage of being able to, to capture some of this information and present ads and, and, and stories to people in this way. Well, we are, we are taking our baby steps. Do you feel, Matt, that the level of quality is increasing? Imagine being the first person to ever see a TV ad. You'd be like, wow. Or the first time you see a billboard or even hear a radio ad, you'd be like, wow, what, what is that? The very first online ad people ever saw was probably like a tiny little banner or a box at the side of some website and was probably so underwhelmed by that experience in a way that other media has really delivered something amazing that we've been trying to catch up to, try and get over that bad hump, that bad start, if you like. Um, you know, if the first ever digital or online ad was a beautiful half-page expanding or some sort of preload environment, you'd be like, wow, now I'm, I'm welcome to the internet. But as it was, it was, it was awful. So then creatives didn't want to get involved. People didn't want to get involved. They saw it as a direct response medium almost, um, mm. which you know st still can be. But there was just no f focus on brand or focus on the emotive power of advertising, I think, when the first little buttons and banners started arriving. And I think we've been trying to lose that ever since, really. Melissa, do you think that's right? Do you think creatives maybe have been a little bit snooty? over the internet. Yes, I think in my experience, and I think it's, it's, it's changing, I think. I, I mean, I've worked at many different agencies, like traditional and digital. I think definitely in the, the traditional agencies because the budgets have been where, where the, the TV is. So I think digital has taken a back seat there and maybe been more of an afterthought or seen as like matching luggage is a, a term that's often used in the industry. But now I think you've got more and more digital first agencies that are actually getting, you know, the briefs that the advertising agencies might have gotten to do the brand building work and, and start there because brands are, are looking at, at that as a way to, to get work out that they can test and learn and, and just thinking digital first. And are the clients' expectations getting higher, would you say? Yeah, I think so. But I think that's on us. Like we have to set the standards and and make sure that we are, you know, pushing pushing the work and making sure that we're doing the the best that we we can do. True. Does data impacts on your work in any way? I mean, sometimes when I imagine creatives, I think about them just sitting back and suddenly being hit by a great idea. 
But of course, there's a process behind it. Where does data fit into that process when you're thinking about that big idea? It's fundamental to it, right? Um, to be honest, yeah. So you know, I sit in an innovations team, and my right hand director in our in our department is Data and Insights, who realized quite quickly that the sort of science that a traditional planner would use generated a particular type of insight, and that you could augment that with another form of, of insight, um, which, which came from a kind of slightly more robust amount of information coming in in a different level of analysis. Um, so, you know, what I've spent a lot of time in my career and the projects I could say I'm most excited about are where we've combined those two, where we can start with an insight that comes from a more traditional planning perspective, because, you know, those, you know, these are people who've spent decades getting to know the voice of the consumer and developing those instincts to kind of get to that, that single thought that is the jumping off point for an idea. And I think that what we've learned um, through data is that sometimes there'll be four or five building blocks that a planner used to get to that insight. And there's, there's real value in going back to those four or five and kind of looking prior to the distillation to the one single thing and kind of going, wait a minute, there's four or five ways in here. And, and data can help us understand that, you know, within a, a set of consumers, these three building blocks might resonate with them. I and mean, that's where the match luggage approach starts to fall down. Um, because actually you want to start to think about, you know, experiences that are personalized to where a particular consumer is um, in their journey. And then you can look deeper into segments and understand how to do something that will be more meaningful to parents versus non-parents or young generation versus an older generation. And you just start to look at kind of how do you tap into their values and their beliefs and preferences and behaviors. And we use, we use that all the time. Can you explain match luggage to us? I've not heard that turn of phrase before. The creative idea is expressed typically with a single thought or a single line or, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some sort of very simplistic expression of the creative idea, which is the core essence of what you're trying to say. And as digital and other channels, you know, kind of have come along, people have just gone, well, how do we say that exact same thing here in six seconds on YouTube and here in an, in an animated GIF banner rather than looking at it and saying, you know, I've, I've kind of tended to say, let's look, think about it more as choreography. So how do we choreograph a story so that when you first experience this idea and it's on this channel and then you experience it next here, how does it move on? Okay. Does that match your experience yeah. of the match luggage approach? Yeah, I think back in the day, matching luggage was uh, you'd take a, a TV ad and, you know, you'd have the print and then banners that, that all had exactly the same message and image. And I think a, a really good example um, today is when you have a TV ad that's cut down and put on YouTube or Facebook. But um, how we like to work is... We will do fit-for-purpose ideas and content that, that makes sense for, for different audiences on, on different channels that will all ladder up to the, the bigger idea, um, but just uh, designed in a way that actually makes sense for that channel and, and explore, you know, things like 360 video or AR or, you know, all of these different technologies that we have access to. And Matt, one of the things that we've been exploring in this podcast is the idea that the obsession that we've had with data-driven marketing, especially within programmatic, has been at the expense of the creative. Do you think that's what happened in our industry? I was, I was reading something this week and it was basically saying that um, whilst we can basically pinpoint accurately target any subset of a target audience, a group of people we, we choose to define, the advertising message didn't change that much. 
so we were we, we were doing all the hyper targeting, local targeting, amazing all this tech, spending all this money on these great ways of reaching a find audience, but the creative was by and large the same. So it kind of like begs the question: Well, what's the point in doing it anyway? I think there's a huge amount of value in contextual and relevant targeting, but if you're going to do that, make the creative contextually relevant as well. So, Drew, do you think then that the creative needs to catch up the technology? Mm, I mean, that's an interesting one because you'd sort of almost suggest in some regard that the creative is somehow behind, and I don't think that that's true. I think that the creative and the technology just need to work together more. After GDPR, the advertising industry will no longer be able to violate user privacy using data in quite the same way that it has. There is some talk in our industry that we will then move from being a DR medium to a branding medium. Do you take that argument? Yeah. It's a blanket statement, so I think there's nuance to it, of course. But I think that there's a little bit of a reset that goes on here, which means that a lot of the assumptions we've had about the experiences that consumers want, um, which have been created because we tell ourselves that that's what they want, at the moment they have very little means of voting against what we do. This reset is going to force us to kind of to rethink the level of engagement that a brand and a consumer will have with one another. And, you know, not entirely, you know, it's not it's not going to be a completely blank slate. But I think that we will have to, you know, brands will have to reconsider just how the relationship with consumers needs to go. And are these conversations about GDPR making their way into the creative department? With us, yes. I can't say that I speak with that level of confidence across the industry everywhere in the world. But I think, you know, I think that, you know, the the businesses that have been good at getting to the emotion and storytelling on behalf of brands will be doing the same thing. Matt, how do you think GDPR will impact on creativity in our industry? Well, I hope it's the really the catalyst for change. I don't think actually the legislation per se or the fact that it's that May 25th date is going to, yeah, fundamentally we'll all wake up and it'll be completely different. But hopefully it's going to allow marketing directors and people to say, actually, you know what? Let's take a look at this. Let's stop for a minute, regardless of the legislation. But let's use this as an opportunity to redefine what, how we want to create messages in the in the digital space, if you like. And that will hopefully lead to much more creative conversations happening around how to engage and, and less of this kind of race to the bottom for the, the lowest possible price for an advertising unit with the highest amount of targeting. So you see it as a welcome reset? Yeah, I, I want to, 100% want our clients and our, the, the companies we work with to turn around and say, look, let's look at this differently. Let's not do what we're currently doing or how are we going to change and, and the way we operate in this space? Because, yes, we know the targeting's great, the data's great, the reporting's great. It's got fundamental flaws, which we also know about. What don't we know about? Making awesome ads, you know, making great stuff. So let's talk about that um, rather than all the, all the stuff we have been talking about. And use GDPR really is the... Yeah, the reset button, I think we said, is like rather than it being the actual legislation itself. Melissa, are you looking forward to pressing that reset button on May 25th? Yes. I mean, I, I think it's going to force the the industry to think harder and work harder to, to get people's attention, right, and just make sure that we're making things that are meaningful and, and people want to, to engage with, they want to interact with. So I think it's a, a good thing. Where I really think the creative is brilliant is where it taps into um, a moment in time, you know, event marketing, if you like, moment marketing, stuff that is like culturally relevant at a certain moment in time. If everyone's talking about it, being part of that conversation, that's the stuff I really love. Drew, what about you? What gets you excited? That Nike TV spot, the Londoner one. I, I think everybody in our building 
we all stopped and we watched it and you, you could see it moved down the rows of desks and it moved all around the building and there was a moment where everybody was talking about it. There's a tremendous amount of respect for great creative in our building and I think everybody, kind of myself included, just thought that was brilliant. And do you think we can now deliver creative that doesn't require consumers to give up their privacy? The previous episodes, we've looked at how consumers have been asked to give up their data in return for a, a free internet. Where do you see the creative process fitting into that? Can we deliver great creative without tapping into consumers' privacy? Absolutely. We always have. If the internet were switched off tomorrow, we could still do that. Do you agree with that, Matt? Do you think that we can have a great creative experience without having to compromise people's data? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, you know, the Nike London stuff's a great example of that. There was no data into anyone's but It was simply tapping into the kind of culture of London, if you like, and the fabric of it and making a great ad around it. There was no privacy hack there. There was no, it was simply great creative insight, if you like, around what it, what it could mean. I think one of the problems that we've had is that surveillance marketing, if you will, has eroded people's trust. So can creativity win back that trust? Creativity on its own? Hard to say. Um, I think that the, the erosion of trust is not just the, the effect of the, the marketing department um, or the creative agency. I think that there have been a lot of conspirators in the corporate world who have contributed to the dissolution of trust. And I think that, you know, it would take a lot more than just a marketing or a creative agency or a media team to rebuild it. Um, it's going to take some, you know, a bit more hard truth and, you know, and a bit more honesty at all levels and, and quite a few functions in inside the building. Um, um, creativity can play a role in that, but it couldn't do it on its own. So, Drew, I wanted to speak to you about John Lewis. So your agency is responsible for the John Lewis Christmas ad. What are the important elements that you consider when you're making an ad that is going to be as impactful as that one? So, caveat, I've not been there a full year. Um, so I've only been in the building during one cycle with John Lewis Christmas. So the story I'd probably like to tell as an answer to that is more about the Adam and Eve creative process generally, um, which is that to move people, you have to hone in on a real, like a genuine human insight. And and then you got to drive, drive it home emotionally. You know, Christmas should invoke a spirit of giving, um, showing, you know, gift giving as a means of signifying and symbolizing the importance of the relationships that you have. Matt, why do you think those John Lewis ads work so well? Uh, I do love them. The just the emotional impact they have. That's sort of like you just watch it. You get that really warm feeling. You know, you I almost want my, I'm willing myself to cry and get emotional at this. And I think like certain brands, brands like John Lewis, now they've built up so much brand love that they could put out something that wasn't ten out of ten, but people go into it in such a heightened state of expectation almost that. You're like, yes, oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, I loved it. Netflix are doing it at the minute. I said, again, Netflix, you sort of you hear that drum go boom, and it's like a Netflix original series. You're like, I know this is going to be good. Drew, would you tell us about the creative process where you work? How how do you approach it? What's a, what's a typical day like? Are you are you lying back on your chaise long, thinking about stuff that relates to the client? Is it? Is it less demanding than, uh, say, a more, you know, data-focused role? No. 
with us, I suppose, you know, and 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 again, being new, I'm 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 still very much kid in the candy shop, at Adam and Eve, because what's impressive to me is that whilst the creative product is such a huge part of what we're passionate about and kind of what the agency's been built around, what fuels that is an absolutely razor sharp and very creative strategy team as well. So we will have cross-disciplinary briefings at the beginning of a project. So there'll be, you know, uh, multiple skill sets around the table. But what I'm always impressed with is that, you know, I'm not often given, when I'm brought into the creative process, a blank sheet of paper. I'm given a clear sense of who the consumer is and how they're feeling and what we know and, and, you know, what we think they're feeling right now and where we want them to be emotionally. And then that that balloons out, you know, that becomes quite wide, you know, and I think that's where everybody's, there is no, well, the creative guys do that part and you do that part and never to, never the two shall mix. It's, um, you know, if you've got a strong idea, you bring it to the table. Matt, so things are going to change post-May 25th after the European Union passes the General Data Protection Regulation. And there will be in our industry, we believe, a renewed focus on contextual targeting over cookie-based targeting. And I know that this is something that you're a fan of, contextual targeting. Could you could you explain it to us, the, the importance of it and how it differs from data-driven marketing that re- relies on cookies? The, the way in which we'll think about a, an audience is not kind of like how old they are or what they've been browsing, what they've been doing. It's like, what are they into? What are they passionate about? And take a take an audience, or you start to define what the consumer may may look like, and then think about okay, what unites them through the passion points? What are they really really into? Um, and that could be music, or it could be uh, film, it could be sport, it could be wellness, something that unites the audience. Um, and then you go looking for them from a contextual point of view, because you know fundamentally, if you're if we're looking to sell tickets to a gig or an event or a festival, and you're on a music site. Showing music advertising is going to work a lot better if you're if you can show an ad um, an advertisement that is more in line with what the consumer is looking at or what the you know the the, the person is and how they're behaving. It's going to mean more to them than showing them something completely out of context. So we are expecting quite a bit of changes to happen, but for us, we've always focused on what unites people, you know, and what what those passion points are. So I think for us, it look we'll still continue to look at what the verticals are and how we can then make sure that we're we have a good presence and that we are in that conversation where people are talking about music or film or video games or wellness and health beauty that sort of stuff and make sure that we've defined uh, you know th- those kind of areas that we want to look at and then f- the creativity can come from from that as well Melissa do you welcome this renewed focus on context we already think that way. So, for example, we, we've got a really interesting campaign that we're working on at the moment for enterprise rental cars, and it's all around just making useful, useful content that that's going to be relevant. So, you know, a lot of the time, when people are wanting to to rent a car, they're they're not thinking about uh, they're not going to a brand that they love, but they they just want the basics like information. So, um, this campaign is just about being useful and, and being in the, the the right place at the right time. So, um, it's it's content that we can put out in in all the relevant places. Drew, you talk about something called creating gratitude. What do you mean by that? And can you give us an example? You know, I will let you have access to some data about me 
in exchange for experiences that use that data to make me grateful that you exist as an organization and that I've been willing to transact with you. So Spotify is a great example because, you know, Spotify are tracking quite a lot about you. But what Spotify do is, you know, they took the whole idea of a streaming music service and rather than, well, let me put another offer in front of you. Let me give you a playlist of some music from South America that you'd have never found. You know, as a as a consumer, my passion for becoming a Spotify consumer is renewed every Monday when I get my Discover Weekly playlist. And every at the end of every year, when they give me a web page full of data about how my listening habits differ from my friends. And so, so some information that could feel quite big brother and quite scary if you didn't understand, if you didn't understand how they were using it, or more importantly, if it wasn't played back to you in a way that adds value. Um, and so for me, you know, so I, I really don't mind what Spotify does with my data because I feel like they're constantly giving back. Because they're creating gratitude. Yeah. It's a really interesting point. Can you think of any brands that have created gratitude for you in that way, Matt? I don't know about brands because I still want to be retargeted in the right way. You know, like I still, if I'm a fan of the Arctic Monkeys and I've been to their last three gigs, I want to know when them tickets are going on sale. I need to know. And I don't mind if I get an email that tells me that. (laughs) So anything that's going to really add value to you, then I still want to receive that kind of tailored approach to engaging with a brand i do want to know when the next yeah the next pair of air jordans is coming out or i want to know when the season starts i want to know this stuff and so anything that gives something back in, in return for anything you might have given them or even not given them it's, it's a, a positive two-way exchange so it's time to close i thought maybe we could finish by hearing from all three of you about the future if you look into your crystal balls how do you think it's going to play out creativity and the internet and advertising matt future is it's one agency i think there's no there's a complete you know no division of different disciplines within an agency it's kind of one one agency that is close to a brand and a client and can deliver one central creative piece of ingenuity that comes across everything and that's, I think, super, super important. I think that it's it, it's extremely positive for that. I think we have, there are too many agencies trying to get a slice of a different pie, and it's been driven by the digital age and the ad tech, if you like. But I think a massive return to engaging amazing creative thoughts, if you like, that then manifest themselves in, in whatever way and whatever format they, they can take themselves. Drew? I think the reset button that we're going to press in May and some of the new rules that we'll all have to grapple with. It won't be the end. There'll, there will be people who will colour outside the lines and won't follow the rules, and there will be grey areas that people will continue to take advantage of. How about you, Melissa? I think experiences. I think, um, you know, if, if it's a, a TV ad, a, a story that you're telling, I think it's how you bring bring people in and, and create a, a world that, that is more immersive. And I think technology is allowing us to do that more and more. And that brings us to the end of the Silence Please podcast series. Thank you to this week's guests, Managing Director of MJ Media, Matt Fuller, Executive Creative Director at 360i Europe, Melissa Ditson, and Experienced Director at Adam and Eve DDB, Drew Spencer. A massive thanks to Bob Hoffman for recording extracts from his book, especially for this podcast. 
I'm Lee Henshaw, one of the owners of Silence Media. This series was produced by Jesse Lawson from Reduce Listening. Our music is by Super Thriller. And finally, thank you so much to everyone for listening. <laughs>